Before we get into the show and introduce today's guest, I would just like to thank United Medical Credit for being sponsors of this podcast and of the Business of Dentistry. As a matter of fact, they have a special offer for Business of Dentistry members, 0% merchant fees for the rest of the year, and 30% discount for life after that. You can get that special deal by either going to DocOffInvestments.com and clicking on the Deals section, or by going directly to www.unitedmedicalcredit.com forward slash TBOD. Thanks again, UMC. Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts. Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Hoffpower. The next level would be the phenolics. Yes, people have reaction to phenolics. <clears throat> They're not used in you know, daycare centers, in neonatal wards, and so on. Okay? The lowest one, <clears throat> which has been cleared by tweaking, are the quaternary ammonia compounds. Okay? 20 years ago, quaternary ammonia compounds were only used to clean floors. Okay? But they tweaked it now. It's the most, because of marketing, it's the most popular one. And everybody kind of challenges me on that. And I said, well, you know, you listen to what you want to. But at the same time, <clears throat> on the instruments, you don't need to, you need to soak the instrument. We'll talk about the instruments and soaking the instruments and so on, you know, in uh, instrument reprocessing. But a lot of people have started, you know, what you call applying a surface disinfectant on instruments right after it's used, that's an overkill, but that's okay. They soak it, that's a good thing. And then they, uh, you know, sonicate it or use a machine to wash it and then stick it into autoclave. Those are good. But <clears throat> when we spend hundreds and thousands of dollars a year on a disinfectant, choose the best. You know, there's no two ways about it. The claims are very different, you know. And <clears throat> Then environmental surface barriers are the next topic. You know, you've got to think about. It. You know, you've got to think about efficacy versus environmental effects. When I walked into Texas A&M College of Dentistry, they were, you know, in 1997, they were bagging pretty much everything, all, including the hoses all the way to the hand pieces. I said, dudes, you know where this plastic is going? There's no recycling of plastics in dentistry. It's all going into the landfill, you know, south of Dallas. And those landfills are growing taller and taller. You know, I didn't know that they were landfills. I thought they were little hills and mountains in a flat plain. And I thought probably this is interesting. And then I asked my friend, he laughed at me and he said, those are landfills. That's the waste which comes from DFW. I prefer using a disinfectant and wiping it down and only using the barriers for very critical uh, areas. I'm not talking of uh, Spalding's criticality of surfaces. I'm talking of, you know, <clears throat> let's say you can wipe down your hand. Uh, you can wipe down your handles. You can't wipe down the light switches because, you know, those you can use a barrier, a small barrier out there. Or you can have, you know, uh, sensor hand pieces where you wave your hand, I mean, uh, switches where you wave your hand and then the switch goes on and off. Those kinds of things. Uh, most of your surfaces can be wiped down between patients. You know, in uh, early 2000 and late 1990s, somebody came up with an algorithm and said, well, you waste two extra minutes per chair 
by wiping it down, why don't you use a barrier instead? You can save a whole bunch of money. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, whatever sells, it will sell. But today, what are people doing? They're wiping it down and putting the barriers on. So it's a, you need to do one or the other, okay? So I leave it to people. Now, barriers also are eyes. You know, you need barriers for your eyes. And I talk about uh, curing lights. You know, when you have a curing light, uh, which wavelength is 380 to 530 nanometers, and you stick it in front of your eye for about, you know, a couple of minutes, it will immediately start macular degeneration of that eye. You got to use eyewear, one for the patient, one for the assistant, one for yourself. To those orange ones, which make you look like a bumblebee, yeah, those. And for those people who say that, oh, I use loops, there are loop inserts with the same, uh, you know, blocking wavelength by, by the material which are available. Uh, I talk about lasers. You know, I've seen lasers, the glasses for that, they cost about $250. I've seen dentists using a laser with an assistant using plain glasses. The assistant has to have those glasses too. You know, so these are some of the things which I see uh, missing out, uh, Chris. It's, it's sad, but it could be done, but they don't know better. I, you know, I do not blame anybody, but what has happened is uh, infection, the safety, dental safety training has been put on the back burner and forgotten. Okay, and the oven is not even turned on. <laughs> so it's kind of sitting and gathering dust. Then personal protective equipment. You know, before COVID happened, everybody had a cookie cutter thing. For every single patient, irrespective of the procedure you're doing, they were wearing full PPE. You know, head, uh, you know, a bonnet, goggles, a mask, gown, and gloves. And I said, why, why are you wearing this for dry procedures? You know, I, I served in uh, oral diagnosis and treatment planning. We hardly use the air water syringe out there or a handpiece there. All I said to my students was, you know, use plain gloves. If you're wearing prescription glasses, go ahead. That's it. You know, and if your mouth is smelling, chew gum. There's nothing wrong in that. And just use plain gloves. And those people who are af afraid of Greek would, you know, wear a mask and eyewear. That's all. I've never been gleeked on in, in 40 years of my dentistry. Okay. Because you lay the patient down, and that has to be really powerful gleek. <laughs> okay. So uh, you only use full PPE when you start using a handpiece, an ultrasonic scaler or an air water syringe because you want to avoid splash and spatter onto your eyes, your nose, your mouth, and your clothes. Okay. There's nothing wrong. But when COVID hit, when SARS hit, you know, in 2002, I actually handled exactly what we were doing for COVID, but we did it for SARS, for the whole school. We had to take temperature, I said. You have to ask questions before they walk in and let in very few patients at a time and wear PPE. See, I used to use N95 and P100 respirators in 1994 
1993 to 1997, when I used to go and see uh, TB patients in the negative air pressure room every week. I used to do that on the grand rounds. Sometimes I had to go pull a loose tooth out there. Yeah, those are difficult to use. You know, the breathing is hard to them. Yes, all those things started off being implemented in the medical facilities in 2002 because of uh, SARS. Then in almost close to 2010, because of AH1N1 and 2015 because of MERS. We started doing it in dentistry full force and it became a guideline or a recommendation only because of COVID. And COVID is a bad thing. It's highly infectious and it shows results immediately, unlike TB. Now, uh, so you got to, you know, what you call use your PPE based on anticipated exposure. To the risks. Okay. Hand hygiene. Oh my God. You know, when I was in dental school, when I started practicing dentistry in the field, this is way before gloves became mandatory. In India, I washed my hands before a patient, after a patient, when I was leaving the place, I used to wash my hands and get into my bike or my car and then go home. Today, just because gloves were introduced, people have stopped washing their hands. On the other hand, they use a hand sanitizer. You know, if you have dirty hands and you just use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer, it's going to fix all the dirt onto your hands. The best time to use your hand sanitizer is to use it after, immediately after you wash your hands and dry your hands to get that extra kill effect by the alcohol. Well, not, not just that, but the alcohol itself, if the bacteria has a glycocalyx, it's actually just going to spread the bacteria all over the place. It's not actually going to kill it. Exactly. Yep, yep. See, alcohol, you, you remember when we were doing botany or zoology, we used to use Aquanet hairspray to stick the uh, things onto the glass slide, the substrate onto the a specimen onto the glass slide. Alcohol sticks dirt and grime onto your hands onto a surface. That's why even in disinfectants, I say use a water-based disinfectant rather than an alcohol-based disinfectant. So, yeah, you're right. And and the glycocalyx of certain microbes, I mean, it doesn't, this one doesn't do much. Uh, alcohol doesn't. In fact, we use alcohol to preserve spores, if you remember. Yeah. Hand hygiene, it has to be done. It has to be done, taught as a science. And then Today, when everybody, you, you remember we were talking about implantology. Uh, every dentist is now placing implants. That's a beautiful thing. Cost of implants have come down uh, considerably uh, since when I started dental school to now. And, and guess what? People are not following safe surgical guidelines. You remember we talked about that. You know, this is going to hit the, hit the ceiling soon. Somebody is going to have a site infection because they have not washed their hands or they're not using sterile gloves. Uh, you know, they have to learn about the surgical hand scrub, at least, you know, to know the principles of it and wash their hands twice as better as regular general dental hand washing. Okay, that, that's another area. Now, instrument reprocessing, you know, uh, there's a bunch of stuff which I've seen. Uh, people are doing it mechanically. Okay, 
when the instruments have been used, you separate out the uh, waste, the gentle waste and the regulated waste right at the chair side and the sharps as well. I tell people, put a sharps container in each shop, a small one. You know, I even tell the person who used the sharp, the disposable sharp, to dispose of that sharp and not let a second person try and use it, like birds, like uh, scalpel, you know, blades, if you're still using a bottom part, or if you're using a disposable scalpel, dunk it in, you know, into the shop's container, keep it safe for the next person to come and clean it. Then you have to take those instruments. I've heard horror stories of dental assistants actually picking up the whole instrument uh, tray and sticking the hand pieces in a soaking solution and sonicating it and then, you know, bagging it and, and sterilizing it. That, that yeah, sounds very costly. <laughs> oh, yeah. That sounds very expensive. <laughs> I, I know, but, you know, this is, this is what happens when somebody whom I know or a dentist, random dentist called... Doc, what do I do? My hand pieces are not working. I said, talk to me about the process. And that person didn't realize they were doing it for the past few months with the new assistant would come in. So, see, uh, everything was in silos in the clinic. And I don't blame people for that. But the problem is there has to be some information integration as to what's happening. And this guy, you know, each handpiece costs anywhere between 1600 to 2700 depending on what you want in those handpieces. <clears throat> And instead of a handpiece going in for service every year, he was pretty much losing a handpiece every six months. And that's a lot of money. So, uh, you know, then after that, you have to think about instrument reprocessing. You know, there are many ways to reprocess. And there are certain things you cannot reprocess. It, <clears throat> you know, one of the ex uh, examples is we all autoclave handpieces, right? I mean, that's a must including slow-speed handpieces. But there's one handpiece which is never detached from the device. And that is the hygiene handpiece, which we use, which you cannot detach the handpiece. It's connected to either the parkel or the dense ply, you know, bobcat or whatever the thing may be. And we only take out the tips. Have you ever taken the sleeve out, cut it and you know, dissected it and looked at the amount of gunk in it. It is horrible. But yet they still use those hand pieces, but they only take out the inserts. I tell everybody, you know, every clinic, get rid of those, get a hand piece, you know, that goes in either an ultrasonic or a PSO electric hand piece, which can be detached and reprocessed, you know, according to manufacturer's instructions, like autoclaving it, you know, as a terminal end of the reprocessing stuff. Then uh, the other thing is <clears throat> everybody has mis, uh, has been misguided on chemical indicators. You know, I've gone into clinics, you know, I've done at least about 800 clinics in the past few years, you know, walked in, walked through and spoken to them as well as trained them. Most of the people who use chemical indicators think that it is a mandatory thing to use chemical indicators for every bag, for every cycle. Not necessary. They don't know the classification. CDC says it is an, you can, it is not you must. We don't know the difference between can and must. 
But most of those clinics have learned from dental industry that are selling the supplies to them. By the way, you remember I was showing you the data on, on the, the digital indicator, which I worked with on Maxim. And the digital indicator shows that even the biologic indicators of the spores only measure up to half the cycle. And all these other chemical indicators, including integrators, have been pegged to a biologic indicator because they wanted a phyton equivalency clearance of phyton K to the FDA. So <clears throat> people have to go through and never break a cycle. You don't need to wrap every bag until and unless it's a surgical kit because it's good to have the wraps when you can open up the wraps the inside of the wrap is a clean surface so you can place your instruments on that well, <clears throat> but for general dental purposes you can still use your pouch which is the easiest one for the assistant to you know to back in then people don't I, realize i think one of the things that people don't know um and, and and there are some dentists who know this i know but i know that there's a lot of dentists i talk to who have no idea um, is the differences between a pouch, a wrap, and an unwrapped instrument, and that it's entirely Great. okay to autoclave instruments unwrapped if they're going to be for immediate usage. The wraps and the pouches are simply to maintain a sterile environment for as long as possible. So right. I, I think that people don't realize that. Can you give us some timelines on that? A pouch versus a wrap versus a naked instrument on how long they're <coughs> sterile. Yeah. coming out of the autoclave so that people have that information out there. Right. So an open instrument, <clears throat> sorry, an open instrument sterilization is considered a flash sterilization normally. And most of the agencies do not like it and they have not approved it. Okay. So if you're using an unwrapped instrument that goes through a complete cycle, it is only for immediate use then and there. You cannot store it in another pouch. You cannot, I've seen that happening in a lot of clinics where they actually autoclave uh, the handpiece naked because somebody from the 80s has, or late, uh, late 90s has told them it's okay. And then they put it into an unsterile pouch. <laughs> it breaks the whole cycle issue out there. So you cannot store naked instruments. <clears throat> and another thing is we have dentists who have come from all over the world, you know, and uh, dentists who have been trained there and come here. And then they've seen the ultraviolet boxes, not boxes, these are called cases or in audible cupboards. They autoclave the instrument and then they stick it into that thing and use it five days later. Those things do not work. You can actually, if you dump the whole thing into a broth, we'll have some beautiful colored growths. You know? So you do not do that. If you're going to use, uh, you know, the flash sterilization was actually a cycle that was designed. You know, if I went in for a hip replacement, the implant which goes into my, you know, my femur and my hip, area by mistake if it got contaminated let's say we had a person with butterfingers and dropped it on the floor the implant they would immediately take it clean it and then sterilize it naked and bring it back immediately and during that process it would take about 10 minutes they would keep me alive you know by giving me a little more blood 
by stabilizing me. That is what it was meant for, not for dentistry. You know, the next thing is, there is no, to be frank with you, there is no timeline for storage as, as sterility is concerned. If the seal is good, if it does not allow external contaminants to get in, you can keep it till the cows come home. I'm talking of months, years. Yeah. The so reason... That's actually new one on me because I, I was under the impression sure. that the barrier of a pouch was a semi-permeable membrane. And because of the fact that it was semi-permeable, that it would go bad after, I believe I was told a month in school, but, you know, maybe they were just telling us a load of BS, you know, that someone else had told them. So your, your, your official statement on that is <clears throat> as long as it's been sterile and the, fa and the, the seal is still good, you can have yep. an assumption that 20 years from now it's still sterile. See, the thing is, it's like, where can you preserve it well? In a dry area, whether there is not dust or other uh, humid contaminants which can get on a pouch. If it is kept in a decent, dry, uh, clean environment, like in a cupboard, you know, you can keep it for, I mean, as long as, as long as you can. And then nothing, the, the barrier should not be torn or broken. Okay. There so should Dr. be no water stains on it. Another, so let, let's say somebody, let's say somebody does a sterilization run. They do a full 25 minutes. They open the <laughs> sterilizer. They are allowing it to outgas or dry, but they don't have time because they have a patient in the chair. They pull it out. Now, all of the other instruments right. in that run did not actually get the drying cycle. And so yeah. those instruments are not going to remain sterile for as long as a complete dry cycle instrument would. Are those instruments Correct. even considered to be sterile at that point or not? Uh, well, if you, you can dry it immediately, you know, without letting it go through a complete dry cycle, let's say, for example, you had to pull out a, you know, what they call an implant handpiece immediately because the other one stopped working. Okay. <clears throat> you can take that implant handpiece out and if the cycle is not completely dry yet, close it back and run another cycle. There's nothing wrong in that. Hey guys, now a quick word about our sponsor. I'm really excited to announce that we've partnered with United Medical Credit to offer an exclusive deal just to TBOD members. Now, United Medical Credit is a patient financing provider with unique waterfall lending process. It allows them to approve a much wider range of applicants. In fact, the widest range of applicants in the entire field. I've been using United Medical Credit in my practice for a couple of years now, and I'm seeing great results. They really speak for themselves. I see at least 30% increase in the number of patients who are actually approved whenever going through UMC. And the best part is patients are accepting treatment. More acceptance, more patience means more revenue. Right now, they're offering TVOD members a special discount of 0% merchant fees until the end of the year. That's right, until the end of 2021, you get 0% merchant fees charged. And they're gonna give you a 30% discount for life after that. Now, if you wanna claim this offer for your practice, 
go to www.unitedmedicalcredit.com forward slash TBOD. Or as always, you can go to Dockoff Investments, click on the deal section, look up UMC, and register. Thanks a lot, guys. And UMC, thanks for sponsoring. Okay. But don't take wet instruments out because wet instruments coming out, there is no assurance that it is sterile. It's going to stay sterile. You got to put it on a surface somewhere. There'll be contaminants on the surface. And it can wick. It can wick. Exactly. You know, and that's what, you know, that's another thing which I've seen in dental clinics is be it a Midmar, Tuttenauer, Sycan, or whatever the thing is, a lot of times people ask, uh, go check the bags. There'll be water spots on the bags or there'll be still water beads inside the pouch. Then I asked them, did you stack it? Then they show me, no, this is how we place it. Then I said, why don't you call the technician and increase the, increase the drying part of the cycle? You know, they can do it from on the board. They can do that. You, they have to come out dry. If they don't come out dry, you cannot effectively store them and be assured. Now, how long can you store it? The, the thing was, it was incident dependent. Suppose there was a tear. The minute the tear happened, the, the instrument is considered non-sterile for storage. You can use it immediately, probably, if, right. you, if it happened in front of you. If you break a pack, you use it. Otherwise, you put it through the whole cycle again. You know? It was an incident uh, dependent length. But then what happened was in hospital systems, they started having uh, issues with uh, people, you know, not logging in what instrument came. They had barcodes. Some good hospitals had barcode systems where you would know exactly which patient you use what instrument on just to make in case they had a post-op infection. Okay, that is why time dependent thing came in, but more so in the hospital field. I have not seen the CDC in their recommendations saying that it can only be stored or it has to be color coded. It can only be stored for a week, a month, a year. No, it is incident dependent as far as I'm concerned and as far as science is concerned. Now, if they work for a system, like let's say I work for a hospital system, if they say you can't keep it for more than a month, that means I'd have to put the date just before I stick the thing into the sterilizer, either the the sterilization date and the expiration date, or if you have a a barcode, you can put the thing in and then you can go back and rescan your barcodes and then take those things out, which have been, but it is not mandated through science. And I have not seen it for dentistry yet. So So let's talk a little bit about troubleshooting. Um, A lot of times people have issues. You were talking earlier about overstacking, um, stuffing the sterilizer, which can cause beating, uh, which can cause rust, which can cause things not to ever get sterile again, right? Uh, Let's talk about the appropriate use of surgical milk, uh, when it can be used, what it should be used on. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things you may see go on with your sterilizer, um, that 
people can have an easy idea of what may be wrong. Uh, for instance, water beating, um, packages that aren't completely dry, uh, steam escaping during the cycle, um, and, and, and all of that. Because one of the things I think people really need to know is that these indicators are an indicator that something happened at some point during the cycle, not that the cycle right. was correctly done. And so your Correct. indicator is going to indicate one thing and only one thing, and that is whether or not it got up to a certain temperature, which is almost always dependent upon the pressure because PV equals NRT, right? So Correct. basically it's an indicator of only one thing, which is the pressure. So if it didn't get up to the pressure for the right amount of time, it didn't get up to the temperature for the right amount of time, you are never going to know if that pouch is truly sterile. You just know it a snapshot in time that it was at the appropriate conditions to become sterile if it remained at those conditions for, you know, 25 minutes. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what they can look for in addition to those indicators on the packages to know that their sterile runs are in fact sterile, besides just spore counts, because everybody should be running a spore count at Correct. least once a, once a month. So uh, once well, a week, once I'm a sorry, week. My, you're, you're right. I'm sorry. My yeah, I was about to correct myself once <laughs> a week. So yeah. once a month was for India that at least I said, you should at least do it once a month, but that was for the Indian subcontinent. But anyway, so <clears throat> number one, know how to reprocess and clean the instruments. Okay. Now, if you have hinged instruments, you know, in the past, we used to always go ahead, do the cleaning, do the pad drying, and then we used to drop the, you know, uh, the sterilization milk. It is basically, you know, it does not allow rusting of the rusting or galvanic currents that can happen when dissimilar metals are there. That is one. The second thing is it'll stop the corrosion on the hinged instruments, okay? But today, actually what I've seen over the past few years is the formulations of the ultrasonic machines cleaning solution has changed to incorporate the anti-rust, anti-corrosive items. Then <clears throat> uh, even, even for the instrument washers, they've taken care of most of it. You know, at least in the US, I have not seen corroded hinges the only time I see corroded hinges is when the sterilization or the drying cycle is not effective. Or, and cheap, or cheap Chinese instruments. Stain, I said, or cheap Chinese instruments, because the stainless oh, yes, steel that we use here in the Americas, um, the, yeah. the carbon is fixed, whereas the cheaper, softer stainless steels that you can get overseas, it's not, and you'll still get some rust and pitting on those. Oh, oh yeah. No, no. Uh, you, you know, I don't know. We practice in America. We only take US dollars or maybe euros sometimes from patients. But we want to buy Chinese. We want to buy Indian or Pakistani or some sub-Saharan uh, country or some lesser developed country uh, devices that we use to treat a patient. And we kind of, you've seen this on, on our social media. Sometimes it breaks my heart. When I see a dentist, you know, challenging, challenging, <clears throat> why should we pay $1,600 for a handpiece when I can get it for less than $100, you know, on Alibaba? Because the handpiece that costs them $1,600 goes through testing. They use better materials to manufacture them. 
It costs a penny. I've been to places they manufacture dental units to these instruments. And I know what goes into the quality control. And apart from that, going through the FDA or the CE clearance, it is a lot. And not it's, they don't go through it only once in their lifetime. They have to show repeated annual, biannual tests. That it works. That means they have to maintain a lab and run the standardized specification tests to show. And then the FDA does look at the data through independent evaluators. Amy looks at it. Yeah. You brought that point up, uh, Chris, and I feel sad. Why do we need to? And then that's one thing. Why don't we spend our money for American things? You, you know, things made in America. I, I don't um, know. I'm biased. I like German things. I, I feel like the uh, the sure. Messinger I mean, burrs and uh, the, the German sure. uh, German made forceps are, are far far higher quality than most of the ones that made in America. Sure. I mean, like Kabul, uh, WNH, and yeah, I mean, I know, but American things are not bad. German things also go through the clearance out here. You know, the ones sold in the US, buy it from reputable dealers. Don't buy it on, uh, you know, what do you call, what is that, eBay or Alibaba or somebody selling it for non-medical purposes on, on Amazon. You know, buy it from the dealers. You know, I, that's that's true. But I don't have anything against that. You know, I mean, against buying good stuff. Now, uh, so the sterilization milk that has been taken care of uh, for most purposes. If you still want to, you can still get it, but you use it after you clean your instruments, pat dry them, apply a drop at the hinged areas, and then bag it and stick it in you're fine you know so that is one then when you load your instruments don't overload your instruments that sterilization a sterilizer is not going to run away you know i should ask a dentist is your sterilizer running and then if they go check it and they say it's running i'll say run after it no i won't do that it's going to stay in your clinic so run multiple batches with just the right amount of instruments you know, you know, in one place where I had to go investigate a clinic, uh, it was a public health clinic. I found close to 35, 35 bags of instruments stuck in, in, in you know, the in small an, in an 11 inch? Inch? Pardon? In an 11 inch? No, no, not 11 inch. Okay, I'm I was talking say, about how did they even fit that? Uh, no, the Sycan. You seen the the flat Sycan mm -hmm. one, which has just got one tray that pulls out. Mm -hmm. I saw that many stuck, literally, literally packed into it. Somebody wow. sat on it and then shoved it. And just wow. When I saw the thing, I just went berserk. I I said, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to go any further. I called the people who told me that, you know, they were planning to spend about fourteen or $15,000 on me to go and evaluate five clinics. On the second clinic, when I found this, I said, nope, I'm not taking any more. You pay me 4,000 bucks for these two days worth of uh, evaluations and then fire them. I told them to fire them. And then they fired that company, that entity that was running the public health clinics for them. It was a large one for Dallas-Fort Worth wow. area. So, 
I've seen that. So, so as a rule and, of thumb for, for anyone who doesn't know, for some reason, uh, your instrument cases, your cassettes just shouldn't touch each other. You know, that you shouldn't be stacked on top of each other. <clears throat> you know, single layer. Now, with, yeah. with single layer is good. instruments, it's two, you know, two layers, you know? Yeah. Do you have to have an air circulation? Yeah, two layers is good. Another thing is instead of laying them flat, if you can get an insert, you know, the tray thing which goes in, which is vertical. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a nice way of placing it as well, you know, because that is the ideal room on each side of the cassette, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You know, you can use cassettes. I prefer cassettes. Yeah, it takes more cycles to reprocess, but they are so handy. Now, uh, you know, diagnostic instruments, you don't need to have cassettes. You can just put them into a pouch. But, you know, like uh, hygiene uh, cassette, then uh, items for surgery, items for implantology. You know, those actually belong, there's a reason why you have a cassette and then the number of slots for them, because it's a series of instruments you may need. So, yeah, cassettes are great. Uh, and, And they have lesser amount of injuries too. Make sure that you place them in the cradles and not with, you know, like Willy Wonka would do in a chocolate factory, having funny things happen. Make sure that they're laid out properly and then you close the cassette you know, before you stick it into the sterilizer or uh, for reprocessing as well. So, and then another thing is the chemical dot on your cassette, you know, which is pink that turns into a chocolate color. Keep an eye on that to see if it is uh, sterile. You know, a few months ago, I had uh, one of uh, the dentists call me and she said, uh, uh, we had a temp who came in, you know, and did not look at what was sterile and not sterile and picked up a non-sterile uh, pack and treated the patient. And then she went to the same stack and treated the next patient. She treated two patients and then that was a contract for the day. She left. And then when they realized that had happened, they, they went and called the patients and told them to come back for blood tests. I mean, she could have shoved it under the rug but she said that I intend to call these people and test them for uh, blood and let the county health department know what happened. I said, you're doing the great thing, but make sure you talk to your lawyer as well, just in case things blow out of proportions. You know, we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, mistakes happen. And that was a true mistake. They had not told the temp worker that this is sterile, this stack is sterile, this stack has still to go through reprocessing. And what they were still using was the pink dot turning um, chocolate color. You know, why don't you use the zebra tape on even a cassette uh, uh, pack or uh, wrapped cassette or wrapped uh, uh, case or even a pouch? Just use that zebra tape, you know, that beige color tape which shows that horizontal black stri- uh, stripes that go in. That is sterile. This is not sterile. I mean, at least not. It's not. It is sterile. It at least says that it, it's gone through a reprocessing heat cycle. Another thing I've seen uh, very commonly is people reusing <clears throat> disposable items that cannot withstand heat sterilization. They stick it into glutaraldehyde. And that's most, wrong. Most common one I've seen is uh, impression trays. 
Yeah, I mean, those plastic impression trays, uh, a lot of those things are single-use disposable. Then there are reusable plastic impression trimmable trays, which can withstand. And you got to actually, and those cost uh, extra money. They, they are as expensive as the steel trays, you know, the metal trays, because uh, they, they can withstand sterilization, but they can also be trimmed. We can't trim a metal tray. So, mm -hmm. so if it is a single-use disposable item, dispose of it. Do not reuse it. Another place where I've seen is, you know, those uh, cheek retractors um, and then photography mirrors, which we use in intraoral mirrors for photography. Um, I think that, you know, you there are still, you know, reprocessable uh, mirrors available. There are reprocessable, you know, cheek retractors. I've seen uh, air water syringe tips and suction tips, disposable ones in, uh, you know, glutaraldehyde. I mean, that kind of blew me off. I, uh, like, you know, it was I, like... I actually have something I do in our office for mirrors. And what that is, is I will get a package of 100% cotton socks. You have to find the ones that don't have elastic in them because the elastic is unclavable. <clears throat> yep. But you can take those mirrors and you can slide them into that sock and then put that into a sterilization pack and you can sterilize it and it sterilizes. And it also keeps Correct. your mirrors from getting chipped and from getting ruined by that, that constant. All scratched. Yeah. So for anybody who uh, is worried about that, it's actually a really valid concern because if something is rough or scratched like a mirror that's been scratched, right. it does not sterilize correctly. So you may want to do that with your individual mirrors to keep them from, you know, getting scratches <clears> on them and, and ensure that you have a good sterile cycle. True, true. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen them putting it into muslin cloth, wrapping it up. I've seen that uh, like <clears throat> being done in San Antonio. Yeah. Sorry? I said like little mummies. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So do we now, have a uh, number eight on this uh, list? Do, do we have a Pardon? number eight? Do we have a number eight on this list here? Uh, for those of you who are watching it. on the video, he's got a list of the things we're covering here. Let's go ahead and uh, let's jump. Well, actually, we, we kind of covered number eight already. The water treatment system. Right. No, no, no. Water treatment. No, <laughs> that is a biggie. That's the worst thing. The first thing I'd ask every clinic is, do you test your water lines once every three months for every chair? That's a, that's a requirement. That's a CDC's guidelines, which has been there. CDC's guidelines are nothing but recommendations which state boards require you. The reason why I keep saying that is, number one, I've tested pretty much every single item that is there in the market for dental water lines. Most of them have gone through my lab for their EPA or the FDA submissions when I was a faculty in uh, you know, at Baylor. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there have been deaths because of contaminants, uh, contaminate, uh, contaminants or microbes in the dental unit water systems, like Legionella. There have been many, many, many cases that had to be hospitalized. There was a, recently, there was a public health clinic out of California, Anaheim area, where close to 50 odd uh, Pediatric patients had to be admitted to a hospital because of surgical site infection. They were happily pulling out teeth and using the regular treatment water. They were not even using sterile water through a dropper 
you know, through a monojet surge. And that clinic shut down totally. But these kids were hospitalized. They had been taken to emergency and hospitalized and treated, treated with mega antibiotics because they had bony infections of the jaws. Yeah. So uh, there was a death due to Legionella in Italy. Now, these were cases that kind of blew us out of proportions at random. What if there's a surveillance of the dental clinics? Now, that is the tail end part, you know, testing the water lines to see if they are uh, more contaminated than 500 colony forming units. Now, <clears throat> what do you use for providing uh, dental treatment water? What is the quality of your water? How do you clean your lines? How do you disrupt the biofilms? Do you have a shock protocol? Do you have a testing protocol? What do you uh, treat your dental treatment water with? A low-grade antimicrobial or what? So that is, nobody knows, not one clinic I've been to knows the true protocol. For surgical stuff, of course, we have to use sterile uh, you know, water. We have to use a sterile delivery system as well. That's why most people go for, you know, what you call a, a device with a peristaltic pump, and then they attach, <clears throat> you know, what you call sterile saline or sterile bags. And then that is attached to a sterile uh, surgical handpiece or an implant handpiece, and then you treat the patient. Or they use a single-use disposable monojet syringe with an assistant dripping water. So that is one topic. It's, it's pretty long. It takes about two hours to go through and understand truly what you can apply in a dental clinic. So that's then dental safety and radiology. Uh, make sure at least once in two years, you get a tech to come with their Geiger counter and everything and run through all the radiology stuff. Then of course, for Texas, because you guys fry people, the state's boards of Texas requires you to have every three months a test done. An internal evaluation, uh, you know, uh, you used to, you know, to make sure you use that step test or the pin test or the coin test or whatever it is, you got to do that. Then another thing is the barriers I've seen, I've been to most clinics where they've done pretty okay with hanging up the barriers, the lead aprons and stuff like that. But some clinics, I'm not joking, those lead aprons, when I shake them, I can hear crinkling. And they must have been you know, there for daddy long years. So uh, simple things. Then also a radiation symbol. A lot of clinics don't even have a radiation symbol where they're going to be taking x-rays. And a lot of people don't even understand the radiation in dentistry is not that bad for even for, for a pregnant person. So educate your staff, you know, read a lot of a-L-A-R-A, -A -A. you know, it's just very short, short poster, document, whatever it is, you know, and uh, it also can look at pregnancy and uh, radiation in dentistry. Okay. Uh, so those are some of the things, you know, you should, you should learn from. So I'll be developing within a week, I'll have the form, a fillable form, which you can download from you know, uh, from where Doc is going to put up the podcast. 
I mean, where, where you know, put up the podcast, I'll have the form ready for you. Let it be a self-assessment thing. It'll say, it'll have a yes or no and not applicable, you know, those kinds of things, which you can do it on a periodic basis, at least on an annual basis. Fill out those forms and stick it into your safety manual, you know. And if you guys are uh, interested in training, you know, online training, you know, self-paced, get your office on <clears throat> uh, to uh, to CE. More the people per office, lesser it is per head. Even individuals can do that. And then from next month onwards, you know, I'll be actually providing actual classes where you guys can register individually or as a whole, you know, as a clinic. So that's basically today's presentation from my end until and unless Chris has uh, any questions and, you know, we can do a wrap up on that. Well, Dr. Bataya, thank you so much for your time today. Folks, if you want to find out a little bit more about what your team can learn from Dr. Bataya, um, go ahead and go to toothce.com. Take a look at the offerings they have there. There are going to be some new courses open this month. And um, of course, Dr. Bataya is also going to get us that self-assessment sheet. We'll post that in the business of dentistry for everyone to use. Please comment below that post with any questions that you have, and Dr. Bataya will do his best to answer you. For right now, thank you for wasting another hour and a half listening to the sound of our voices. I hope that you receive some great actual information that you can use in your practice immediately. Until the next time, this is Doc Huffpower and Dr. Ragu Pattaya signing off. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, folks, before I let you go, I just wanted to make sure I thank United Medical Credit for sponsoring this podcast and also the business of dentistry. Go check out their website at www.unitedmedicalcredit.com forward slash TBOD to get a special deal. Thanks for listening to the Dear Doc Podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc Podcast on all major platforms.